and there can be wild gesticulating. I've been watching Staged. I only ever watched the first season of it. Mm. And that was during lockdown. And then I got through my I want to watch lockdown content phase and into my I never want to see anything about lockdown again phase. Yeah. Um, and so I missed season two and season three, which I didn't realise came out really recently. And so I've now watched season two. Well, I rewatched season one, watched season two, now watching season three. I forgot what assholes they are. Like I know. The, the characters they're playing. It caught me off guard because I've been watching loads of interviews with them. And they're so um, sweet. Yeah, they're lovely. Absolutely, and absolutely adore each other. Like Michael Sheen staring at David Tennant in adoration as he speaks is very funny because it, it is very good omensy. Um, <laughs> except now Michael Sheen is heavily bearded and speaks in a heavy Welsh accent with a deep voice. But yeah, on stage, obviously, the, the, the shtick is that they're both incredibly cantankerous. And... I haven't watched season three yet. I, I think I watched season two when it came out. Yeah, the lockdown content thing is weird though. Like I was showing my partner Mythic Quest and I hadn't rewatched it for ages and we got to the lockdown episode mm. and I just started crying. Oh. It's like yeah. oh. it's not <laughs> even one of like the good crying episodes in Mythic Quest. Oh, it is. Some of it is. It is a little bit. Yeah. It's the bit where Poppy starts crying. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that probably did make me cry as well, actually, because I remember it. That's that's how I remember things. <laughs> I mean, as lockdown content goes, that was a very clever well done episode of television yeah it was yeah it just um, also gave me emotions that's probably meant to isn't it yeah probably what they were going for fucking people (laughs) giving me emotions coming in here I finally am watching and just like that the Sex and the City reboot oh how's that well I've seen so many clips from it on TikTok and people bitching about it that I thought I should watch it for myself so I know it's coming to the end of the second season I'm still on the first it is, the criticisms are valid, I would say. Yeah. It is, in trying to be progressive, it comes off as very, how are you doing, fellow kids? E. Also, my favourite one isn't in it. Yeah, same. Do you uh, remember Sam- when- Samantha, the first woman yeah. I saw topless on the television. Oh, that's nice. I remember probably- very clearly being far too young to be watching her riding a man in fairly explicit detail. <laughs> yeah, was she yeah. topless? If she's not, I've imagined she was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was probably the first topless woman I saw on television as well. Yeah, I um, mean, it's a good start. Yeah, not gonna, yeah. It, it's fine, but yeah. Um, I, I, I did really like Sex in the City when I was a, a child, I guess, and young teenager, but it's, it's in the same way that Friends is difficult to revisit, mm-hmm. I feel like that's going to be times 10, so I just never have. I um I actually didn't watch like all of it when I was sort of child slash young teenager mm. and it was on because my mother eventually realised it was inappropriate oh, yeah. and to maybe not leave me alone with the DVDs. Um, but I watched all of it as like an adult, like I don't know, five or six years ago. I was like, oh, this is a huge cultural phenomenon. I should get around to it, and uh, it, it does hold up. Like it's it's of its time. It's very of its time. Mm. Some of the politics are really weird, especially around things like bisexuality. Mm. Uh. But for all that, like, it is an entertaining watch. It doesn't yeah. suck as a show. Oh, that's cool. Do you remember that whole thing of, like, everyone had to sort of, everyone would say if they were a Samantha or a Carrie or a Charlotte or a Miranda? Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing. I don't remember where I came down on that. Probably nowhere because I didn't really have that kind of friend group at the time. But I, remember, <laughs> I certainly remember it being in Miz and Cosmo or whatever. Yeah. I think I'd probably say I'm a Samantha based on... Now. Yeah. 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 I pro- probably wasn't saying that when I was, I don't know, 12 years old. So, I yeah. don't think I can remember the difference between Charlotte and Miranda. 
Uh, Miranda was the ginger one, who's a lawyer, and he's played by Cynthia Nixon, who's a um, very well-known out queer actress. And Charlotte's the like longer-haired brunette one, who's a bit prissy. Yeah, but like personalities. Oh, I think that was it. Lawyer and prissy. Wow. The two genders. You fucking feminist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there's any other news. Uh, yeah. Board game tablecloth magnets don't work, so I've decided to disavow all magnets ever. Mm-hmm. Fridge? Even fridge. Devoid of magnets? No, I have like a big magnetic sh- weekly schedule thing on my fridge. I never write on it. Oh, there there. That's issuing it. It's fine. Yeah. In fact, that's worth because you're letting it know it should have a purpose and it doesn't. That's fine. We're talking absolute bollocks. So uh, We absolutely are. Do you want to make a podcast? <laughs> yeah, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we're usually reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series in chronological order, but we've taken a break from that to talk about Good Omen Season 2. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll, and what a break it has been. What a break. This An emotional the... break as well as a physical one. <laughs> Quite literally emotionally broken. Now, this is our last episode for now on Good Omen Season 2. It's our big wrap-up episode mm-hmm. before we go back to the disc. So, note on spoilers before we crack on. Uh, this episode will contain spoilers for all of Good Omens Season 2, as well as the book Good Omens and Season 1 of Good Omens. Uh, however, while we are usually a Discord podcast, we will avoid spoiling any major events in the Discord series. And of course, we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discord novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So if you're new to the Discord, you can safely come on the journey with us. Driving carefully in a yellow Bentley belonging to your beloved. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> so... Let's start with the big thoughts. All right. What do you think of season two of Good Omens? <laughs> well, Joanna, <laughs> what do I think of season two of Good Omens? I, um, I enjoyed it, I think. I think yeah. I overall enjoyed it very much. I don't know what to say overall. That's that's quite a big one to start with, isn't it? That is a big one to th- start with. I thought we'd go big and then uh, shimmy down. How do you feel it kind of compares to season one of Good Omens? Very different. Yeah. Just a very, very different way of telling the story. Um, I think, I still think season one was better paced. Yeah. I think I agree. That, is, that was just the side effect of having, you know, a very tight, well written book as the framework, um, as opposed to this where Neil Gaiman had all the time he needed to take to get us to, you know, it's a, it's a bridge. And it was an enjoyable bridge to meander across. It was. I, th- I feel like this is a very distinct beast from the first mm-hmm. series, and I think, like, fingers crossed, we get a season three. Looking back on it, it'll be like season one, and then season two and three, mm-hmm. and they'll be in a box, in two boxes, but very close to each other. I should think, and I'm imagining, and I know we'll go to this later. I'm imagining season three to be a bit more like season one, and it's. Uh, in its pacing, yeah. and build up, and what I think it's going to have a big thing is building towards. Mm. which I think will uh, affect the pacing thing. I think the pacing for this, like just thinking about this, is a unique series of television. Mm. Although it's weirdly paced, I think that's because it relies on having a very deep investment in the central couple to yes. build towards the outcome. Yeah. And again, I, I the, the only thing that bothered me about the pacing really was as I was watching it the first time going, well, we're, we're nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I want to get to somewhere. I feel like a lot of the pacing issues would have been fixed if it had been a weekly drop rather than a binge drop. I think spacing it out into those six weekly chunks would have actually helped it. I mean, maybe, but we didn't watch it all in one go. 
No, but we did we did like blocks of one and two and three and four, mm. and we were watching it kind of weird. I I don't know about like how you watch it for doing the podcast, but I was mm. like watching two episodes and then watching them again and taking notes on them, and then pretty much since we were done recording, I was watching two episodes and then mm. waiting for a few days. So I was sitting a lot with individual episodes. I think if it was more evenly paced out across six weeks, I would have felt differently about it. Yeah. I also think it's possibly unfair for us to judge the pacing on that particular pattern of watching, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a unique series of television, I think I I agree. If if you weren't invested already, it would be a very old thing to watch. Oh, yeah. But the fact is that Crowley and Aziraphale, or honestly, more specifically, Sheen and Tennant, are yeah. such engaging, incredible characters to watch that I fuck. I would have watched them in fucking anything. It was fantastic. I loved the detail and the aesthetic and the the weird little. I I loved all the flashbacks and that shit. And and any shortcomings I saw elsewhere was mainly just because it was put next to Sheen and Tennant, who I do think are absolutely stupendous actors. So. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I mean, it did feel immediately like we were back in the world of Good Omen season one. Mm. It didn't feel that distinctly different. You know, the music was there. They were mm. there. The The beautiful look of the whole thing was there. Mm. Which is interesting because it was very different the way they filmed it, wasn't it? Because they built this whole bit of Soho in Edinburgh. Whereas yeah. beforehand, they'd been freezing their tits off somewhere. I can't remember where, but certainly uh, they not. They filmed in... a lot in South Africa for the first season. Yeah, that's um, obviously not the location I meant they were freezing their tits off in. Yeah. <laughs> But no, I know what you mean. There were there were some more location shoots. There was things like issues with getting into the globe to do a location shoot was a big thing. Mm. They had burned down a whole bookshop that they then had to rebuild, I guess. Yeah, yeah. If you are going to burn your bookshops, as they say. Uh, don't burn your bookshops before they're hatched. Yep. Don't put all your sets in one bonfire. <laughs> right, this analogy is going to destroy us. Mm, and the bookshop uh, we're in. So we got a bit unhinged as we were talking through the series. We did, but I think that's fine. I think on the scale of stuff I've read on the internet, we weren't too bad. No, I think we were we were doing okay. So let's start with stuff that we kind of got right and things that, you know, did come together in mm-hmm. the end. Uh, so the fly. Yeah. We spotted the fly. We thought mm. it was an important fly. Uh, according to Neil Gaiman, all flies were CGI, even Rodney the stunt fly. Good to know. No flies yeah. eaten or drilled into an angel's eye in the making of this series. No, but good effort from Rodney anyway. Well done, yeah. Rodney. So it was relevant. It was relevant. Uh, possibly not quite in the way I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a Beelzebub spying on things situation. Well, I think one of my wild tangents was that there was going to be memory in the flies, so I'm feeling pretty fucking happy about that. Yeah, you should be proud of that. Um, however, I didn't notice the fly until you pointed it out, so... <laughs> well, that a 50-50 win. <laughs> also, if you'd asked me to predict which heavenly person Beelzebub was having a secret affair with, I would have gone with Michael. You reckon? Well, Michael's I mean, so uptight. Oh, I get it. Yeah, we saw Michael like, <laughs> yeah, we saw Michael going through back channels in season one. So it's not like Michael hadn't mm. interact interacted with Hell before. What's Michael's motivation all about? Actually, this is not the tangent we need to be on right now. But Michael is power hungry. Yeah, that's it. Like, if you look at the very upstart, well, I'm looking after things for the Archangel, while well, the Arch- I'm acting Archangel. 
Yeah, Michael's middle management, well, upper middle management that found themselves in charge and then like, a bit fucking weird with it. Yeah, there's a hint of Dwight Schrute about her. Yes. About them. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Hmm. But God, imagine the Michael Beelzebub power couple vibes. Mm. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a fanfic. I'm sure there is. Oh We're yeah, calling... absolutely. Wow, that's something I haven't even looked at yet. Looking at the fanfics, I I haven't because there's just there's a rabbit hole that I don't have time for, and um, as I'll get to later, I read a 36 page Google Doc today. Sorry, spoilers for the latter half of the episode. And I guess Beelzebub's existential cryo- crisis kind of paid off as well. Tell me. Oh, yes, yes. Episode three. Yes. That was a bit of, I want to be told I'm doing a good job. I feel like that was a hint of Beelzebub softening after their time with Gabriel. Yeah, because we, we were a bit conflicted about what that meant, weren't we? Yeah. So I felt they were like... still committed. I think you were saying that you weren't sure if they were committed or whatever to the cause anymore. So yeah, I guess not. There we go. So institutional problems. Institutional problems. I think we were not sure what the fuck Gabriel was on about with his very quick snippet. And turns out that the, yes, it was, if it happened again, it would be seen as an institutional problem because they keep fucking losing and wiping the memories of high angels. Yep. Because that does seem like an institutional problem for me, to be honest. Yeah. If angels Even if they don't, don't want, want to be it to there. be. Yeah. They've gone straight from like the head archangel to, yeah, we're going to put him on earth and wipe his memory after one yeah. bickering incident. I wasn't even earth. He was just going to be a really low level clog. Mm. Oh, that reminds man. me. Uh, someone on our Patreon, I can't, I think it was Steve, but I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, or Steven, uh, pointed out that Muriel is a Clark angel. She sounds like Archangel. Ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. All right. Love that. <laughs> Love that. So Aziraphale and Crowley and what we were sort of thinking about them and that paying off, I have a couple thoughts. Please. Uh, so right in the first episode, I, and when we were talking about it, I pointed out that you have this little interaction where Crowley talks about the life I've carved out for myself and Aziraphale says the life we've carved out for ourselves. And I feel like mm. there's an in, that's a bit of an inciting incident. Okay, tell me. Just in the, you know... Aziraphale's the one that's been thinking they're an us already and they don't need to say it and then realises Crowley might not be thinking that way and that might contribute to mm. late, the, the poor communication that runs through the series and inevitably leads to sort of them walking out on each other. Yeah, I, I had some more thoughts about that kind of mismatch of commitment, actually. Mm. In that I think it makes a, more sense the more I think about it because... Well, the the more I think about the fact that Aziraphale still had that connection to heaven in his head, because Aziraphale, Aziraphale could maybe more afford to put his eggs in that basket with Crowley because he had a couple eggs in the heaven basket still. Yeah. Whereas Crowley, if he put everything into this relationship, was, I mean, that was everything. Yeah, he didn't If he have... didn't maintain his independence, then once he lost Aziraphale, that would have been absolutely fucked. And, as you know, it kind of looks like it is. Yeah, I mean, he, he does not really... Ha- I know Beelzebub offers a return to hell, but I don't mm. think it was a sincere offer. Yeah. Um, especially it comes along with the threat. He killed another demon. Like, mm. I don't think he's... Even if after he got away with the holy water thing, I don't think he's encouraged to go back. He doesn't have any eggs in the hell basket. Yeah. And I don't think he would want to have any eggs in the hell basket. Eggs in the hell basket. Amazing. Hell in a hand basket. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting that uh, a big part of the Job story is Crowley's I'm a demon, I lie, considering mm. the culmination of the whole series is Crowley's like naked honesty. 
Yes. Which I guess shows how far he's come from just demon. Yeah. It's <sighs> I, that, there's I'm, character growth. I'm not sure if he ever really was just demon is the thing. That the honestly, the the more I think about all of the things, the the more I think back on it and come up with new headcanons and theories or whatever the more I kind of focus on them as individuals rather than as a couple so like the the Crowley's like fucking the trauma he must have gone through yeah to to go through that from that sweet the sweet being you see right at the beginning to asking a question and being cast into hell if you think about how those first few centuries must have been yeah absolutely that's such such trauma and Aziraphale never really quite seems to grasp that no, Aziraphale's equivalent trauma is what happens with Job, and all that mm. really happens is he has to be sad on a beach for a minute. Yeah, which, you know, which, none of us yeah. like to be sad on a beach for a minute, but he was sitting right next to David Tennant, so... Yeah, and it's... I've never Cheer been traumatised by being sad on a beach. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Give me time. Rose Tyler, sad on a beach next to David Tennant. Right? Never be on a beach with David Tennant. <laughs> well, that ruins my bank holiday plans. <laughs> A lovely little trip to the sea. I didn't. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, one last thing on, on Crowley and Aziraphale as well. Uh, this is directly from my notes on episode five, specifically talking about mm. the Crowley and Jim conversation. Oh, yeah. For Aziraphale, the side he's on is right. They just go about things the wrong way. To Crowley, they're all as bad as each other and he wants no part in it. The whole system is flawed. Aziraphale refuses to see that, applying his version of nice slash good to Crowley. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm really good at seeing where this was going to go. I just think the show set up incredibly well what that problem was between Aziraphale and Crowley before we got to episode six. Absolutely. I thought that was a... Looking back at my notes, the writing is now... This seems absolutely stunning to me in places. I mean, just the fact that Aziraphale was willing to shelter Gabriel like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like why didn't the, and Crowley was so fucking like, what the fuck are you doing? Right and away. It, <laughs> it didn't occur to Aziraphale to worry about Crowley's feelings in that. Yeah. 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 And and we, like it's funny when he first see it, like Crowley go, ah, Gabriel kind of thing. And then but you're like, yeah, I mean, fuck. <laughs> you just got your nightmares just appear in the toga. Yeah. <laughs> Spending a giant tarantula in a toga still terrifying to me. <laughs> mm, how does right now? I'm not going to make you think about that. Thank Let's you. <laughs> you trying to work out whether it wrapped like a little bit around each leg? <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I'm trying not to picture it. <laughs> how does the horse wear trousers? <laughs> Why is it raven like a writing desk? How do you put a tarantula in a toga? <laughs> anyway, so Nina and Maggie. Yeah, them. Yeah. Obviously, I said, especially in the early episodes, it wasn't working for me. Mm. I think it proved really well done and relevant at the end, though. I think so. I I stick by they did not seem as believable, but that is genuinely possibly because they were put next to the couple we most believe in. And I think because the idea of them was so much that they seemed so story-like for the Mm -hmm. thunk at the end to be, hey, we're not a story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really worked for me because the audience starts buying into them as a story before it buys into them as people as well. I felt that was part yeah. of why they were written so Yeah, and why they were put as the focus of that weird yeah. uh, red herring almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. Especially and, after yeah. Nina's line in episode five of other people's love lives are more interesting than our own, like the show was telling us. Mm, very much, yes. That their love life is a red herring. <laughs> My love life is a red herring. 
<laughs> sounds like a an sad excellent. memoir. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the opening to like a very wanky spoken word piece that I oh, want to write now. Doesn't it? Yeah. Not related to Nina and Maggie, but something I forgot to put in the notes is that we didn't get any more car queen. No, we didn't. No, because I was, we didn't I get any more. To. Yeah, yeah, we didn't get any more Crowley driving until right at the end, which is when we get the sad angels thing playing instead. Yeah, I think I would have stuck with Queen, but I understand why not. I guess it was poignant in the moment. Oh, uh, no, right, right at the end, right at the end, absolutely. But I would have liked to see which Queen songs Aziraphale provoked the car into. <laughs> right, so things that we were completely off the wall about. Yeah, many. Yeah, a lot. I'm not going to list all of them. So Nina and Maggie secretly being angels or demons, we considered. Yeah. Uh, that, I think in a particularly fevered moment, but uh, I think... <laughs> well, we were very much in the mood that Aziraphale was doing some kind of fairy glamour and it wasn't working on them. Yeah. And therefore, no, I get that. It I, was still, a... I still believe that that they showed unrealistic resistance to his angelic charms, but fine, whatever. Uh, it was a valid theory that was completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> That's very generous of us to ourselves. <laughs> Unless proved otherwise in season three. Uh, no, yeah, no. Uh, I think we were just hoping for... A cool extra twist there, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gabriel lying. Yeah, I convinced myself that Gabriel could not be that fucking I'm about to walk out the window weird. Turns out, yeah, Jim, get Gabriel heads empty, no thoughts, is just fully pliable. And probably one of my favourite bits of the season. Uh, no one got hellfired or holy watered. Yeah, that was just a random thought. I had somewhere near the end of an episode, which I thought would be quite cool if one of them, if, if, if it looked like the end of the last season, except this time it really was Aziraphale getting hellfired or Crowley getting holy watered. But it didn't hurt because it turns out they're so much not like they were, something, 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 which uh, did not happen. And there's no more. There's no way I can spin that. But could I thought still it was happen, cool. Could happen in the next season. <laughs> yeah. Um, Crowley's whole accent going posher towards the end of episode five again didn't really uh, didn't really pay off. He does go to heaven, but he kind of it goes back to not super posh once he's in heaven. Yeah, I think Aziraphale's head being so buried in the sand about Gabriel, I was mm. theorizing because he had some innate belief that Gabriel must be not right, and I don't I don't think that really paid off. I think Aziraphale's head was in the sand because Aziraphale's head was in the sand. Yeah, Aziraphale's just super good at, at burying his own head. Yeah. Turns out, real good at that. Lovely hair this season, though. Oh, yes, very uh, t tufty, as I think someone in the Discord just put it. Yeah, they said it was like little bits of feathers. <laughs> it is, yes. I thought the uh, this idea of kind of fairy food rules and being tied to humanity by eating was uh, maybe had more weight to it after I figured out that it related to fairy food rules than it did. Uh, no, disagree. I still think it was very relevant the whole time. Okay, cool. <laughs> not, not not gonna... Maybe not exactly the fairy food food rules, but let's not pretend Neil Gaiman isn't constantly aware of and vigilant about being tricked the by the fae folk. <laughs> Even if it wasn't deliberate, there's no way that kind of constant thinking about the, 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 the realm behind the veil does not seep into his work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no, I think there was, there was absolutely a kind of people... Or or uh, otherworldly beings being tied to various realms by the things they consume. 
uh, yep. even if it wasn't as explicitly stated at the end. Yeah. And yeah, so Chekhov's accoutrements, we had a few. Um, I referred to the miracle blocker as... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, for some reason my head immediately started trying to scan that into the I did it my way. Chekhov's accoutrements, we had a few, but then again. <laughs> the miracle blocker, I think I called Chekhov's stamp card mm -hmm. during that episode and uh, it didn't come back. It didn't, no. The zombies, I thought would possibly come back. They didn't. Chekhov's the zombies. Oh yeah. yeah, we didn't see them again at all. I agreed with you on that one. The literal gun, the Derringer in a hollowed, hollowed out book kept Fucking in the bookshop. hell, yeah, Chekhov's gun remains in the book and yeah i was i spent ages getting really corkboard and string about the mild the very mild anachronisms in the magician flash, flashback and fucking nothing i know i when i was editing it i felt a little bad about how dismissive i'd been but i stuck by <laughs> no you were you were totally fair i had i had nothing there I was because again I'd like read some episode descriptions and I think I was aware that there was a magic shop in the next episode. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was like, oh, I wonder if like the magician's gonna pop up again and he's still working at the magic shop all these years later and Azirvas just not clocked it because he doesn't care enough. And uh, yeah, no, I can't remember if you mentioned it on the podcast or whether you sent me a thing, but the fact that there were the uh, the amazing Mister Fell whatever poster had carried on to the. Had ended up in to, the magic to shop. the modern day magic shop. I don't think I said that on the podcast. Touch, yeah, yeah, that was cool. That was gorgeous. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I had a similar attachment to to the to the idea that they were focusing on the wrong things for some reason, other than just purely trying to self divert. Yeah, I, I was going full. No, surely, surely not. This is fucking mental. Uh, they 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 are clever enough not to be focusing on the fucking dance when there's a literal horde of demons. Well, small smallish horde, a hordeette in the country, but in Soho, <laughs> outside the window. That's it. I'm going back down that path again. I can see it. Right, let's go. Quick listener thoughts as well, and we'll talk about some listener theories and things a bit later on as well. Tanya sent us a really long message, and then in the Discord apologised for sending it to us, which never, never apologised for that. We love a long unhinged message. It depends on the content, actually. Well, yeah. So, okay. As of yet, our listeners have all been fine. Anyway, I won't read the whole point out, but um, there are a lot of nice thoughts in it. One was uh, Terry Pratchett specifically writes comfortable, much married couples really well. Like mm. uh, Sam and Sybil, especially in F The Fifth Elephant, is a really good example. They're not demonstrative, yeah. just really solid. Yes. And there's lots of bits of that in Godoma season two. Like, uh, I think the one she pointed out that I love is Aziraphale and Crowley kind of sharing the chair while they're talking to Muriel. Oh, that was fucking fantastic. I loved that scene. Yeah, especially when you throw in the whole bis bisexuals can't sit in chairs properly jokes when Crowley's sort of half leaning across the whole thing. Yeah, and yet he's the only person who is sitting in a chair properly, if you think about it. Who else uses a chair to that potential? True. We're all wasting chairs. <laughs> Having seen that, I now realise. <laughs> and I try and sprawl my limbs in as many directions as possible. I do and it I think I'm better for it. <laughs> as a bisexual, I do it naturally. Unless I've become a pretzel, which sometimes also happens. Um, sorry, I've immediately taken us elsewhere again. This is going well. No, that's fine. Uh, Tanya also pointed out there's this ongoing theme, especially if you're looking back at the book and Good Omen season one as well, of humans being like messed around by the celestial beings until they're not mm. happy about it. So you have Aziraphale's ball and how he's tweaking how everyone's thinking, and he's doing it very blatantly. But if you look at Adam and Tadfield, mm. it's just a much less subtle version of it. And it's Adam who eventually says, you know, let's all stop, stop mucking it. about. Yes. And I mean, Adam's 
event, eventual rant at the end or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, um, stop mucking about and let us get on with things. Yeah. You're all being silly. <sighs> stop yes, trying I, to prove. I really thought about the parallel between what Aziraphale's doing in the bookshop and what Heaven Adam was doing. Hell yeah. both, well, yes, what Adam's doing in Tadfield and then what they're trying to do to his version of the, oh gosh, yes, it all gets a bit meta, doesn't it? It does a little bit. Um, thoughts on the kiss as well, the way Aziraphale's hand kind of comes in like he almost wants to reciprocate but he's unable to and oh. yeah i'm adding a, a, an asterisk to my previous he's furious rant which is he's furious and he's just fucking swallowing the yearning yeah absolutely which, uh, which does make one furious having to swallow yearning it gives you terrible heartburn it does i've heard that um, and Tony pointed out that some of the desperation in those final moments comes from this complacency because they've had 6,000 years and they kind of assume they could just keep tooling mm. on like that forever and suddenly they really fucking can't and they're faced with it. Yeah. So I love that as an idea. Oh, also quickly, Molly on Twitter pointed out that Maggie standing up to the demons felt very Magrat versus the Queen of the Elves. Oh, it did a bit, didn't it? And yeah. I like Maggie a lot nice? more thinking of her as just a little bit Magrat flavoured. She is a bit Magrat flavoured. Yeah. And, her uh, hair's too nice, but apart from that, spot on. I can imagine her trying to put flowers in it not quite working, though. Yes, definitely. And I can imagine Magrat trying to run a record shop and somehow failing in Soho. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> this should so, be the perfect place for it. <laughs> before we start looking ahead and looking at some fun theories about what might be to come, let's do some series awards. Series awards, series superlatives. Series, whatever you want to call it. What, what kind of line... award are we giving out? What does our golden statuette look like? A mysterious orb. I like Ooh. a mysterious orb. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, so it's hovering. Yeah, a hovering orb. Perfect. Love that. So the uh, the hovering orb awards. <laughs> First award is... Horb. <laughs> horb. Sorry, the horbs. <laughs> I'm very sorry. The first one is four. Best line read of the series. <laughs> Fucking wasn't mine. <laughs> you go first. Uh, I'm going with uh, episode six, obviously, and specifically cr the bit where Crowley's voice cracks during the us conversation. And he says, I would like to spend throat noise. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought I'd bring the mood down. Yeah. Right there. How about you? I've got two because I'm cheating. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't have time to write you shorter letter type thing. First of all, very short one is when Furfa is refusing or failing to pronounce Aziraphale's name properly, and Aziraphale looks actually stern for the first time ever and has a little moustache drawn on. Just goes Aziraphale. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that has appeared in all of the Aziraphale thirst trap TikTok edits, which I found so funny because of the little moustache. <laughs> I'm like, guys, <laughs> take a step back. And then a more serious one is uh, episode three, I think, the Job one mm -hmm. um, with David Tennant. But just to be able to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yep. with the, the trauma. That was a good bit. That was episode two. That was episode two. You're quite right. Yes. Three was Resurrectionist. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the Horb for Best Little Face... Who are you giving yours to? Uh, mine goes to Zero Fail as he does a journalism. Hat tip, knowing Hedwiggle. I am following clues. <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. And yours? Mine, 
mine, uh, I've already said this in an episode, but it is Crowley watching the universe start up. <sighs> oh, such a gleeful little being. I thought, actually, as I was rewatching that bit, Mm-hmm. I, it occurred to me that David Tennant has very similar talent to Hugh Laurie and what he does with his face, which oh. is that it, when they're looking harmless, cheerful, whatever, they tuck their chin in a way that they definitely do not when they're going edgy, sexy character, where they're very jutting. And I think that's what makes quite a lot of the difference between how he just completely changes his face between Angel Crowley and Demon Crowley. Interesting. Because he like, doesn't do that when he's Doctor Who or anything, but just no. the, the real, that look of absolute wonder as he does that. And I think he looks very in, innocent and very cool. And also, tiny bit of trivia there, one of the interviews I was watching, they were talking about, as they were doing that floaty up and down bit, they were mm-hmm. strapped on to these gurneys going up and down, <laughs> so it made it very awkward and weird. <laughs> this is the True Show Make You Fret, the only Good Omens podcast where you will hear deep analysis of David Tennant's chin. And gurneys. <laughs> and gurneys. Okay, okay, okay. But, but you know what I mean. With, yeah, the no, Lor- no. with the Hugh Laurie thing yeah, specifically. No, I, 100%, yeah, yeah, I am yeah, not yeah. mocking your yeah, point yeah. at all. <laughs> mocking both of us. You watch him as Bertie Wooster and you can't believe he is quite as attractive as he is in other things. <laughs> Look at him in Blackadder playing the Prince Regent. That's a better example, actually, because he is sometimes a bit attractive as Bertie Wooster. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I have fancied yeah. Bertie Wooster before. <laughs> right, yeah. favourite Easter egg in the series? I couldn't really think of one that we hadn't already done, but as like my absolute favourite. But I found one that somebody else had put that I didn't notice. Um, mm-hmm. When Gabriel and Beelzebub are in the pub, The Resurrectionists, the TV is playing the film The Spirit of St. Louis, which is about Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic. In the movie, he was saved when he was woken up by a fly. Oh, that's a fucking detail. Ah, isn't it? I found that in fucking Radio Times article, something like that. I'll link to it. Excellent. How about you? Uh, so snuck a snuck a couple in. Uh, the seamstress conversation wins for me because uh, I'm a big fan of Rosie Palm and the seamstresses guild and her five lovely daughters and her five lovely daughters. She's a successful businesswoman and knows how to slogan a revolution. What was that fucking thing you sent me? Remind me again. Uh, the oh, the... Dottie and Sadie. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, tell totally, the listeners. It's totally not relevant to the uh, to the Horbs. Neil Gaiman has been getting around answering questions about what's going to happen in Good Omens on Tumblr by um, just making up absolute bollocks involving Aziraphale and Crowley being married to Dottie and Sadie and they all have jobs in a variety of factories. When he's doing bollocks, he loves a factory. Mm. Uh, I'll link in the show notes to someone on Twitter's like very handily put all these Tumblr, pl- Tumblr mm. posts into a thread. But Dottie and Sadie are the agony aunts in... Yes. Yes. Yeah, that is... So that's a, a related Easter egg. Excellent. Ish. There's and also an Easter egg we kind of missed ooh. because they didn't get a good shot of it, which is that there is a painting of Terry Pratchett, like a historical looking one, in the Dirty Donkey pub. Is that so? And if you look for it, you can see it in the background, very blurry. You can oh, cool. see that the hat that is part of the painting. He's in the hat, obviously. I love um, that. And if you look in the behind the scenes stuff somewhere, they've got a proper image of it. But yeah, the, Douglas McKinnon kind of forgot to get a proper shot. <laughs> Oops. Uh, best outfit, Horb, goes to... Uh, I think you'd better start us with that one. Oh, uh, it's Jim, Sue and Co. in episode five. Nice. I can't, that, that you can't a, beat it. That is a that is a coat. Gosh. <laughs> um, I've gone a little, uh, possibly completely the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is uh, Crowley in World War II. That's fair. And that fucking hat. 
And it's the fact track. that I hadn't noticed that Aziraphale had a matching beige one. Oh, did he? As they were walking down the street, yeah. Just those those oh. proper trilbies. Oh. Very, very cool. They are. They are good trilbies. The best cameo slash small role of Horb. I'm going Paul K coming back to do the Pratchett voice ah, uh, nice. over the speakers in hell. But also, um, I, I don't know if it even counts as a cameo slash small role, but Reece Shearsmith is fair, fair. Oh, yes. Everything he's doing in Big that. Applause. Fucking Big applause. Excellent. Big fur fur fans here at the True Show making for it. How about you? Yeah, fuck it. Um, I thought Ty Tennant was just he very was funny. Fantastic. <laughs> Pro- he did. And I worry that when I called him a Nepo baby in the episode we talked about, I was calling him a Nepo baby. But what I meant was he plays Nepo baby spectacularly. Yeah. He's genuinely yes. very fucking talented. Yes. And Especially- he appears in stage series three. Which is what oh, reminded he? me, yeah, and that was fantastic. And it does, and also that bit reminded me that David Tennant in one of the interviews said that his favourite line in the whole series was, uh, "I'm Jemima, I made this pot." I saw someone do a TikTok about it earlier, saying it doesn't matter who you are, Aziraphale, Crowley, Heaven or Hell. Aziraphale made the correct face that you make when a child shows you a thing they've made. <laughs> but yeah, Ty Tennant, fantastic. He plays a little shit so well. I'm sure he's lovely. <laughs> I'm sure he is. It's very, just very funny. He's just really good at doing that. The Horb for best moment where we wanted to smash two characters' heads together. Francine, what you got? I've got, before the dance, and I guess just during the dance, communicate the fucking danger properly, Crowley. Listen to Crowley, Aziraphale. <laughs> There's a fucking horde of demons on the front lawn. My complete ranting and raving about how there must be some kind of fucking magic going on for them not to be paying attention to the point. I, I yeah. stand by because why the fuck weren't you paying attention to the point? And I know why, whatever, whatever. But that's when I wanted to bang their heads together on a rewatch. How yeah, that's fair. I'm also giving it to Aziraphale and Crowley when they have a <laughs> lovely little stroll through Edinburgh debating ethics while mm. Elspeth is lugging a whole fucking corpse. Yeah. Like, guys, if you're going to follow the body snatcher, help the body snatcher carry the corpse. It's very them. It is very them. Poor Elspeth. But of course, we moan about that, and then we moan when they do meddle in the affairs. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's no pleasing us. That's what they say. <laughs> and I would say um, there is a middle ground between helping someone with their admittedly criminal and disgusting luggage and uh, trying to kind of cram two people together like Barbie dolls. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> they haven't found it. <laughs> uh, the Horb for best retrospectively heartbreaking moment. Mine's reasonably trivial, so I'll go first. It's well, rather easy to communicate. It's just Crowley talking about the breezy breakfast just before oh. it all kicked oh. off. Just him being just so so sure that that was what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to go for a boozy breakfast and like just sinking back into the routine before he decides to break the routine and then it gets broken in a whole new way. Yeah. yeah. How about uh, you? Uh, Crowley and Aziraphale having their glass of wine together after the magic show. Partly because that Shades of Grey conversation was like the closest we got to them coming to the understanding that they should have fucking come to by now. Mm. And partly because Crowley like, has already sat down with a drink before Aziraphale explains that he switched the evidence out. So Crowley was like, expecting a whole fucking legion to come for him the next day and thought, well, yeah, obviously I'm going to go for a drink with my angel. What else would I do while I'm waiting for a legion to come? Oh. Yep. 
Who's your season MVP, Francine? Uh, Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically, Crowley looking in through windows and smiling as Aziraphale does things. I feel like and that's a specific Crowley. I feel like you could also add to that Crowley looking out of the window grinning as he's trying to make the rain happen and the awnings happen. Oh, yeah. I keep seeing screenshots of that because, yeah, as people t- like point out, that's his one... Um, as a demon, his one big moment. smile. Yeah, yeah, like, and then then he does look like Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, he does. I'd say. Um, my season MVP is build out the shoe wipe. Yeah, Legend, I mean, just, just the idea of being an expert cobbler and midwife in that yeah. time period. It's just incredible, fantastic, and and by extension, and uh, the fucking wig department looking after David Tennant for the many sides. Oh, I'm still. They not. were doing the Lord's work. If it wasn't for the mutton chops, I might have picked one of those outfits. I mean, I do feel like an honourable mention to Crowley's Victorian outfit. Yeah, and Aziraphale's. They were just incredibly yeah. fancy coats. They Goodness were me, good. those two got into fancy coats for that century. <laughs> they absolutely did. Right. Should we look forward to the future? I guess. Uh, hopes and predictions for season two, season three. Season three. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, what do you mean by Gabriel's moment? Uh, specifically in episode three, is while Crowley's doing the awning and, awning and makes the rain happen, and it's the, there will come a tempest and darkness and great storms, and the dead will leave their grave and walk the earth, and there will be great lamentations every day. It's getting mm-hmm. closer. Uh, and that didn't get a payoff within the season. So oh, yeah. I'm assuming that's there for the next season. Yes, oh no. uh, (laughs) Because the second coming is coming. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So the second coming is, my my previously Catholic friend, uh, is... um, So I got the Bible out. (laughs) It's it's not just Jesus turning up to go like, oh, I've got some more fishes. No, no, it is not. Okay, all right. Well, uh, please elaborate. Uh, So... (laughs) First, I want to clarify that the second coming is not necessarily Jesus being born again because Jesus did not die a second time. He died mm. on the cross. He came back and then he ascended unto heaven. Um, I remember doing Feast of Ascension at school. You know, we have like a really specific like mental image memory thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah mine snapshot. was yeah, mine was uh, reception doing uh, Jesus ascending to heaven coloring page. Oh, cute Catholic school guys. My big churchy one is uh, putting the. The clothes into the orange for the thing. Yeah. yeah. What's that called? Uh, fuck, no, something to do with that. Yeah, the orange thing, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the second coming, the Book of Revelation, also mm. sometimes known as the Book of Apocalypse, as told to John. It is not specified which John, who John Ham. is. Yeah. Yeah, as told to John Ham. Which is why he got the part. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> Nepo, baby. <laughs> so I'm going to try and summarise the end of the world as quickly as possible. You've cool. got the- Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> the lamb and the lamb is obviously fucking Jesus. He's the lamb of God. Breaks seven seals, which sends forth the horsemen and all sorts of lamentations and mm-hmm. people dying. Basically, everyone dies. This bit is very extensive. I'm trying to do this as quickly as possible. The lamb is doing a lot. In chapter 19, in Revelation chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the fiery lake of burning brimstone. Oh, no. Um, do we know who the false prophet is? Uh, it's, just, it's a false prophet. Just a, just a false prophet. It's unspecified. like a test for a lot yeah. of people. Cool. Um who does the casting of the uh, Beast and the False Prophet into the fiery lake of burning brimstone. And I didn't have time so to go I further down. I myself that every day. Yeah. 
Uh, and I'm going to quote directly. He hath a name, a name written which no one knoweth, save himself. He is clothed in a cloak dipped in blood, and the name whereby he is called is the Word of God. Oh. So that's a bit Metatron around the ears. Yeah. Uh, tell me, if I was cast into a like a brimstone, would I be breaking the actor strike? Uh, <laughs> fuck, I tried to answer you seriously for a second there. <laughs> I love that you tried to answer me seriously. That, that, that shows real commitment to our friendship. Thank uh, you. But no, because you're English, so you're not covered by SAG after all. Uh, okay, but I'd be in morally grey area. Quite yeah, apart from the yeah. fact, obviously, I've just been condemned to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like being cast into a lake of brimstone, you're past morally grey areas there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Revelation chapter 20, Satan gets imprisoned in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And the souls I love of how those... you're doing with like a fucking series recap, sorry. <laughs> how else would you, do you want me Our to do this? A ragtag bunch of otherworldly misfits. <laughs> anyway, the ragtag bunch of souls who died for Jesus... Uh, reign with him for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. After a thousand years, Satan comes back to lead astray the nations in all four mm-hmm. corners of the earth, including Gog and Magog. Sure. And fire comes down from heaven and devours them, and the devil is cast into the lake of fire and drimstone. I see. And then... Uh, is that not a bit 20... rare rabbit, don't throw me into that briar patch? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, okay. Chapter 20, verse 11. And I beheld a great white throne, and him who sitteth upon it... And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things written in the book according to their works. And this is the second resurrection. Everyone who died in that big first apocalypse after the thousand years all gets brought back. And if they have been good enough to if they've been good enough to go to heaven, their names are written in the book of life and they So you know. The book of life. I'm assuming we're gonna come back to that next season. I assume so too. Goodness. Um, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Whoever was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Hmm. Which is a different nature of the book of life to what we had in Good Omen Season 2. True, although so far the only people in the, the only beings in the book of life have been angels. Perhaps it just works differently for them. Maybe. We don't know. They're in the preface. Maybe it's a red herring. Maybe my love life is a red herring, Joanna. <laughs> God. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, according to the Bible, the book of life is the names of those who shall be saved during the second coming. Right. Good to know. Yeah. So just some context for that as we go towards a season that I'm assuming is going to be focused on the second coming. Also, Tiny Batchet sidebar. Mm. Um, so the end of Re- Revelations ends with Christ's promise that, to John that he is going to come back. Okay. Uh, big... Honestly, doesn't sound like we wanted at this point. Yeah, okay. yeah. the Bible has a fantastic <laughs> cliffhanger <selling> ending. <laughs> if so, I don't think they're actually going to probably depict Jesus uh, as doing some second coming shit in season three. Yeah, that'll if be. they do, it has kind of already been cast. They did cast Jesus in the crucifixion bit during the um, season one, episode three, yeah, long cold open. That? You see the cruci- crucifixion. I can't remember the name of the actor off the top of my head. However, just for a second. It has been confirmed that Pedro Pascal has liked some Good Omens fan art on Instagram. And fucking can we just hell. can we just picture good Pedro Pascal as Jesus for like a fucking second? I know he's the wrong nationality. I know he's technically already cast, and I'm probably not going to see him. But I'm afraid, Jana, that I did miss the Pedro Pascal train on account of I didn't watch any of the stuff he was in. However, I'm quite amused that this has now come back again because it was like a tsunami. 
Yeah. Of Pedro yeah, Pascal first kind of crashed over the internet and the waters receded. And now we're getting just a little aftershock there. Yeah, um, a little aftershock. Mm, well, for for everyone, for my sake mainly, I hope that's not going to happen. Uh, oh, I, I, I hope it's not going to happen again. Wrong nationality. And you don't say the sake of the people who, who yeah, <laughs> who actually care. Um, <laughs> but just for a second, I just wanted to picture yeah, that. No, sure, absolutely. Um, and the loincloth that it would entail. <sighs> the loincloth you rode in on. So um, Quickly, before we go on to Aziraphale and Crowley as well, the joke's about hell being mm. understaffed. Uh, just a quick joke or setup. Especially if we think that heaven might be in the same state and there's meant to be quite a big event coming. And you know doing big events when you're understaffed is a fucking nightmare. I'm not sure if I'm court boarding and stringing a little bit here, but I think the fact that they flashed back specifically to Beelzebub saying, do you know how hard it is to get tens of millions of demons to put down their weapons and go home? Yeah. While also in like the same episode, Shaq's had 60 of them following her. Yeah. Right? I feel like, yeah, yeah probably a bit of a setup. Cool. My 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 kind of speculation about the second coming very much overlaps with Zerophel and Carly in that mm-hmm. I am I think I think they're gonna bring Zerophel head to head with Crowley in this second coming thing. I'm not sure yet if he's going to be fully committed and change his mind or fully committed, Crowley thinks he's fully committed, we think he's fully committed, but it turns out he's got a plan capitalized in the same way as a clue. Ah. Yeah. That's my current speculation on that bit. Cool. Well, we can let you? that ruminate. Yeah. So, so Aziraphale and Crowley in the future of them, I feel like it's fair to say we all want their fight resolved and then back together eventually. I would like that very much immediately, yes. Um, I really want to see Aziraphale do the apology dance now, obviously. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I just want more gavotte. <laughs> well, we'd all like more gavotte, Francine, but I'm making my hopes realistic. Oh, yeah, that's fair. All right, yeah, I suppose we'll settle for that. If we could have a gavotte share. Uh, well, if we could get a full apology gavotte, obviously that would be the <laughs> ideal state of affairs. How how do you imagine them back together, though? Like, Do you imagine them back in their existing, they are sort of celestial, an angel and a demon, and they're dining at the Ritz? Uh I know some people have talked about what if they became human. I don't like that idea. I like them going back to being Angel and the Demon at the Ritz, possibly with some changes. But I like the idea of them just being the guardian angels of humanity. I do love that. I like the idea that they are the the two that care about humanity above everything else. Yeah, and they are these, like, you know, what what we think of as like a mortal fey folk type things, you know? Yeah. I do also, I don't hate the idea of them as human. I just don't like the idea of mortality as a whole, so I think that just puts me off. Yeah, no, you are very, like, not pro-mortality. Yeah. I do, <laughs> I, and I respect that about you. Thank you know, that's you. what I appreciate about you. <laughs> that's what you appreciate about me. <laughs> um, but that's, I don't know, I think they've spent so long being involved in these grand celestial affairs and also interacting with humanity and influencing humanity whether they like it or not that I would mm. kind of love to see a world where they are just totally free of that they are two humans living out the rest of their lives in a little cottage with their wives Dossie and Sadie <laughs> working at the biscuit factory all right not that bit obviously <laughs> yeah I don't know I um I can see it I can see it happening I think I would be a little put out because of of how I would imagine how traumatic that would be. True. You, you think of, of as you were pointing out the kind of the the 
that was one of our listeners was that this hysteria suddenly almost of the oh fuck I've only got five minutes to talk to you about this six thousand year old conversation yeah um yeah just going from being very long lived to very short lived all of a sudden I think would be very tricky. I think they just they care so much about humanity that to become a part of it, I don't think would be an unsatisfying ending for them. I don't think it'd be unsatisfying. I wouldn't like it. Yeah. Um. I think. Uh, it, I think. Yeah. It'd be odd for them to to become a part of something they'd shepherded for so long. You know, it, it yeah. would seem more to me like, like, yeah, like a shepherd becoming a sheep. Yeah. We um. Think we- but yeah, I can see it being done well, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think as always, my my um, perception on that is clouded by the fact that I want them to live forever. Yeah, that, no, that's fair. I respect that. Um, so, we, so a couple of listener thoughts. We had uh, two listeners in the Discord present like fairly specific visions for season three. Mm. Uh, Tansy's was roughly mirrors the book with a baby triggering end times and an angel and a mm. demon trying to prevent it. Uh, oh, oh. Maybe I, I don't think I'd enjoy that. Um, a lot of I have a lot of feelings about stories echoing and kind of being retold across seasons, and I think it can be done well and it can yeah. not. And I think Pratchett does that's it really like your well. Favorite thing to talk about on this podcast, Joanna. <laughs> yeah, because Pratchett does it really well, and every time he does it, he builds on it. But that doesn't mean that's what I want from a TV show. <laughs> yeah, Books no, and TV shows fair. are different beasts. Absolutely fair. My favourite part of Tansy's theory, and I really hope that something is dived into about this, this small godsish idea that God's been reduced by people believing in institutions rather than the deity, and that's why the Mestron's power is so outsized. And I love that. Mm. Uh, mm. Because, like, yeah, it's, so bureau- it's so bureaucracy. Exactly. And we saw what happened in Small Gods when that happened. It was Pratchett's big thing, was talking about power of belief stuff. And Neil Gaiman does Neil it so Gaiman's well. Big as thing. well. Yeah. I mean, fucking American a, Gods. That is American Gods, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That would not be a bad joint theory to bring into this equation. Yeah. That would so make I, it even more Pratchettian. And yeah. even more Gaiman Gaiman. Gamian. Gamian. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there are rhymes with Damien, it works. Oh, I've got to start thinking about my suffixes before I let them out. <laughs> <laughs> It's a common problem. Um, and the last bit of Tansy's sort of prediction slash hope was Aziraphale and Crowley back on the same page very early on. Brackets, probably wishful thinking. I would love that as well. I like I like it very much when a series or a book defies my expectations by sorting out miscommunications immediately. I think I've said it on the podcast about how that's what I liked so much about Rivers of London right from the beginning. There wasn't this whole fucking half a book of magic. I don't believe magic exists. The magic happens and the main character's like, oh, magic. Cool. All right. Can I be let's a wizard? Go, let's go along believing my eyes over this. Yeah. Um, one thought I have on that as well, I mean, obviously, I want it to, I want to see them back together early, is thinking about this season as a bridge between book one and book two, as book two was kind mm. of roughly planned out, mm. uh, which goes into another quick uh, batshit prediction I have, is I can imagine this is set up because book-wise, book two would just be like, ah, and Aziraphale and Crowley aren't talking. So the book opens with them fixing whatever they weren't talking about. Yes, and it's, like, it's uh, a lot easier when you have the narrator's voice, in a not even like the Francis McDormand thing, but when you have Terry the um, omniscient... Yeah. yeah, you can the just omniscient third slot person. in a paragraph here and there to explain things. Exactly, and yeah. you know, Aziraphale turning up on Crowley's doorstep presuming he's got his flat back and saying hey i fucked up can you give me a hand yeah absolutely um, there's gonna be some some lakes of fire yeah could we uh <laughs> could we 
Oh, yeah, Could we which... shift these yucca plants a little? <laughs> which adds to my um, extra little batshit theory that I may have... I, I kept meaning to mention this in the podcast and I didn't. Because uh, there was some speculation in our Discord over what the like the the, the book was going to be called, and I double checked Mark Burroughs' book, which had it, which is six six eight, the number of the beast, neighbor of the beast, neighbor of the beast. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so the first two seasons are each six episodes, and it would make sense for three seasons for six episodes, six six six. But what if six six eight? We get an eight episode third season. Ooh, that would be nice. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was about to say, if it's 666, that would be nice, but also not that much of a coincidence because British shows traditionally have six, but if we had 668... Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a fine line as well between uh, theorising and just wishful thinking, and I think that is I think we, um, straddling we it. kick that line into oblivion every day, Joanna. I think that True. line in the sand has been thoroughly stomped upon on purpose by this podcast. Yep. Uh, Jed's slightly opposing prediction to Tansy's is uh, Aziraphale is... in the Discord. Controversy in the Discord. <laughs> Well-natured controversy in the Discord. Uh, Aziraphale being naive, thinking he can make the second coming something positive and he's corrupted by power while thinking he's doing good. And then Crowley directly opposing heaven while struggling mm. with his feelings for Aziraphale and not wanting to bring Harmon in. I like both of those. I like both of those. Yes, I think that's kind of how I was thinking that if they actually come to head-to-head, it would play out. Yeah. Um, they're very much like a your loved one is in a cult thing. But I also like the idea of Aziraphale figuring it out for himself and, like I said, just showing up on Crowley's doorstep, say, at the end of episode one and going, I fucked up. Yeah. Or or maybe he does that and we don't even find out till the end of episode three. Yeah. And it turns out they've both been working together and then we get the flashback showing that. Yeah. Like, you know, similarly to when they switch bodies. Yeah, yeah. No game and hire us. No. I'm sure whatever he's got. Yeah, we would is. not be no. able to just talk in sentences at all. I'm sorry. So do we want to talk about some batshit fan theories? Yes. I've got to stop saying batshit. <laughs> I think that's unfair. But some fan I theories. I like, no, I, I think batshit can be a compliment, to be honest. Um, it is batshit brackets affectionate. I've been listening to Messy. a lot of the We Can Be Weirdos podcast and the uh, the batshit list is a, a complimentary part of that podcast. So Excellent. So, um, Loxar on Discord uh, provided a couple. Uh, the drugged coffee slash Mesotron mm-hmm. mind control theory. theory. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't love that because, as I said in the last episode, don't get me wrong, I think the Mesotron is manipulating Aziraphale, mm. but I want the decision to have been Aziraphale's and not be hypnotised Aziraphale's because I think that's more emotionally satisfying. I think the coffee is very suspicious, mm. but I think it might be a herring coffee. I think it's a lulling into a false sense of security coffee. Yeah. See, I'm just like you. I know how to buy a coffee. Yes. Yes. You can trust me. Yeah. Agreed. Um, it is weird, but I do. I, 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 as I said before, I just think it's a ballsier piece of writing. If yeah. This really is a zero fails. Uh, continue. It, it makes perfect sense for this character for this to be happening. It's a horrible shock because we, as Crowley, deluded ourselves into thinking it wasn't for a bit there. Yeah, but it make it it is very much him. So, I do think there's more to the conversation than we know because of the way mm. it's edited and cut yeah. and written. And I yeah. think that's I didn't clever. notice that until you told me. But now I I went back and watched it. And yeah, you're quite right. There are definite uh, potential reality emissions. TV cuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, another theory um, that also came from Logsar on Discord. Uh, Crowley had some of his memories of being an angel erased, which is why I didn't remember Sarah Kell and also mm. didn't recognise Furfur. I kind of like that. I do, because there was 
yeah, I think that was because they talk about enough. erasing Gabriel's memories as a kindness. Yeah. And so I wonder if maybe they tried erasing his memories a couple of times before he fell. And if we'll get some more context for that in the next season of Crowley's fall of, you know, he asks questions and they take that away and then he asks more questions and eventually. That's a big thing, actually, I would love to see in season three is, is Crowley's, Crowley's fall. fall. Yeah. Slash saunter vaguely downwards. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah, he makes light of it with a saunter vaguely downwards, but I can't see it being anything but really, really, really awful. Yeah. Um, something else that was ta- I've seen talked about is what the Great War was referring to, and I always assumed that was war between heaven mm. and hell when all the, the demons became demons. Mm. Like, that was the Lucifer's fall and the, like, aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, to the point where I just, I assumed, not like as a theory, I assumed, like, that's exactly what they were getting at. But I've seen other people say, like, does the Great War mean the First World War? Because that's how that's often referred to, and I don't think it's that. Now, if we're going to talk about shit fan theories, um, there is something we need to talk about, and that is the Google Doc. The Google Doc, which was uh, introduced to us very late in the game by uh, by it was by? Some, um, someone in our Discord. It was Neris. Thank you, Neris. Thank you, Neris, for this. I had seen it floating around Twitter, but before we'd got to episode six, so I obviously hadn't clicked through, and I hadn't realised that this is a thirty-six page Google Doc. So uh, the title. The magic trick you didn't see being an analysis of Good Omen Season 2. This doc is written by Alexandra Rowland. Uh, they are a fairly successful fantasy writer. They have about nine books published. They also teach writing. Also, they coined the term hope punk, which I think is pretty cool. Hope what? Like, hope punk, which oh. is sort of a, a genre name. Oh, is that like solar punk? Like optimistic fantasy books. Yeah, okay. So this, this is 36 pages of yeah. Google Doc. This is a very long, this is what I think was being done in season two, and this is what I think it means for season three, Google Doc. Mm -hmm. This did not be 36 pages long. There's a joke in it about how editing is really important. This could have done with some fucking editing. Now, like, I do get this isn't like a professional piece of writing. This isn't officially published. This is a fan having fun. Yeah. But a lot of the doc very much centers on... I am a writer. I know how writing works. I'm very <laughs> clever about that. And that's why I'm able to figure all this out. And I just think if that's the case, that you should demonstrate that you're a really good writer and edit your work a little bit, because this this could have been five to six pages. This could have been an email. This, this could have been an email. <laughs> the central thesis is basically that season two feels odd, which I don't disagree with, mm-hmm. and badly written. Mm-hmm. which I do disagree with. I don't think season two is badly written. But Neil Gaiman is a very good writer and he knows how stories work very well. So the bad writing must be on purpose. So I, I did try and go in this with it very open-mindedly, but I do disagree with that as a central thesis because I don't think it's particularly badly written. And I don't think Neil Gaiman is so clever that he would write a bad series of television so he can make a really good one. I was about to say, I think that's a terrible idea. Yeah. I think Neil Gaiman knows enough about how everything works to not do that. <laughs> yeah. The this thesis uses the idea that a lot of setup was flatly paid off or not paid off at all. It it uses the metaphor from the prestige, this magic trick thing. Oh yeah. Throughout the whole thing. So the idea of a magic trick is that you have the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And the idea is that season two season one was the pledge, season two is the turn, and season three is going to be the prestige. And again, I don't really agree with it. It's a turn. When you make something disappear. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. And the prestige is... Making you come back. 
Ah, okay. It's a turnip or whatever. Yes, yeah. got it. But you can stick with the idea of setup and payoff mostly. Mm-hmm. Now it runs through lots. Uh, one of the ideas of setup being flatly paid off was Maggie and Nina getting an unsatisfying ending, which again, I I don't think that's right. I think that was the point of Maggie and yeah. Nina. I think they were a, they were a good story, and their ending being, hey, we're not a fucking story. Mm. I think that was that worked for me anyway. Although I'll obviously I, they weren't working for me throughout the show, but I think that. You think the pay- was- the, the payoff kind of uh, put them in a new light? Mm-hmm. There's also another example of uh, disappearing Eccles cakes. You know, Aziraphale gets the Eccles cakes in episode one and he takes them to the shop and he puts them down and then they're not there in the next shot and there's no evidence of a plate or crumbs or anything on. And the only reference to Eccles cakes again is seeing Nina erase Eccles cakes off the board. Oh, imagine if you worked in continuity and that mistake got you a 36-page document. Right. <laughs> and it's like, but they're all too good to make continuity errors. It's like, oh, no one's too good. Have you seen that fucking show? It's full of fucking details. Yeah. There's no way in hell that show escaped without some continuity errors. No way. No. And there is an amusing section called Chekhov's Heavy Artillery Warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've listed some of the Chekhov's gun examples uh, so we have the ones that I do agree with, uh, the zombies, the literal gun, all the Book of Life stuff, the Gabriel prophecy. I think you could call those Chekhov's guns. I don't know. I mean, the the gun, yeah. The, the gun, yeah. yeah. But stuff like the, the, the prophecy and the Book of Life stuff, that's just foreshadowing. Yeah. Right? It's not. Yeah? I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like the term Chekhov's gun is being used really fucking loosely yeah. here. And I mean, I'm saying that knowing that we do that all the time for fun. Yeah. But, uh. I think there's a difference but we're between. Different. It's fine. <laughs> we're not professional writers. Oh, well, fuck, I am. Fuck off. <laughs> so we do. That's literally been my job for many years. Yeah, we, I can't say that. Anyway, uh, the kind of maybe. I'm not a playwright, you are. <laughs> fuck. The kind of. Yeah, I never actually studied Chekhov, though. I dropped out of A level drama because they kept making me pretend to be a dung weasel. Fucking metamorphosis. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, same. The kind of maybes like these are Chekhov's guns, or at least foreshadowing. Is the Crow Road, the Ian Banks story, more relevant? Mm. There is a whole sort of murderistry plot Mm. uh, detective thing. Oh, a mild note on that, by the way. I kept saying uh, Ian Banks is friends with Neil Gaiman, and then found out uh, as I was editing the episode that Ian Banks very sadly died in 2013, and I somehow missed that. I'm sorry. Terrible well, at knowing these things. <laughs> friends from beyond the grave. Friends from beyond the grave. The Mesotron coffee thing, the fact that mm. we don't see all of that. We've talked about that. When I tried to analyse the coffee thing myself after I read the thing, the only thing I could think of is almond. Is like the cyanide thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. That's what cyanide smells like. I don't think the coffee was doctored. No. Uh, nor do I think Azurafa was hypnotised. No, the- agreed. No, these are not things that aren't paid off that have been left dangling section. Uh, why did we need to see all of that bullet catch stuff? And don't get me wrong, that was not my favourite episode of the season, but it set up this relationship of trust between the two and how far they're willing to go. It set, off, set up Hell's interest in the two of them. Do you know what? It wasn't my favourite episode. But going back and watching bits of it again, now I'm not constantly focused on the fact that I'm about to watch a disaster show. Yeah. In, in my general just aversion to that kind of like, oh my God, they're going to go wrong in front of an audience. It's enjoyable. It serves the purpose all three Minnesotas do, which is to explore the relationship between yeah. Aziraphale and Crowley compared to their relationships to heaven and hell. Yes. The statue apparently is gone, but that joke was paid off. 
Zero Falcon draw. I don't think that was a like setting up for anything. I just think, of course, a Zero Falcon draw. What he draws did he like draw? a he draws Jim and he takes rather than taking a photo of him and then takes oh, yeah. that drawing. To, I think that's just a Zero Falcon old fashioned. He's old fashioned, and they're they're both very good at stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crowley wearing sunglasses in the Job scenes, where he's not wearing sunglasses in some of the other scenes set like BCE, but also well, he's he's directly in front of humans, trying not to scare them. Thank you. The quote on the matchbox being so important. It was a Job quote, and then we had the whole Job story, and it directly tied. It was the quote about the Leviathan, which ties into the Go Make a Whale, and we'll talk. I loved the fact that Neil Gaiman replied to some criticism or question with go make a whale and we'll talk yep way to have a god complex 10 out of 10 love that for you respect <laughs> that sounded it. sarcastic but no you know you know me i admire a god complex oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent. i'm into it anyway so this in the in this google doc leads to the metatron must be the bad guy and he is manipulating everything in the show just as neil is manipulating us i don't think anyone thinks that the metatron isn't a bad guy this is the point where, and again, I, I do mean this is like constructive criticism. I don't think this is all bad ideas. I just mm. think it's badly expressed. Mm. Yeah. Um, Seems that, yeah, it, it's just, there was, that's such a long document. I feel a bit bad that we're focusing on it for so long, considering the amount of unhinged fan theorying, but I suppose the difference is. It was all in one place. This, But this was the pit where it really lost me, and we were at about page 11 or so. Oh my God. Uh, quick note before I do that. When you're done with this essay, reread it. I've been doing the same trick Neil is doing, except I'm not a glorious flash bastard, brackets honorific, who's going to make you wait a couple of years for the prestige. I'll just tell you so you know what sort of thing to look for the second time through. If you're doing something fucking clever in your writing, then you shouldn't need to tell me you're doing something fucking clever in your writing. Yeah. Anyway, so the big theory is that the Metatron has access to the Book of Life and he's using it to edit things the whole time. It's not just people, you can tweak memories and shit. Ooh. The clues, there's a whole thing. Which, yeah, that I don't hate as an idea. Um, Puppet Master Metatron. I, I don't love it because I would hate to think that the flashbacks we've seen are not all of it and they're tweaked memories, which is what yeah, this yeah. is implying. Uh, so the Metatron is apparently set up as a storyteller. He's tweaking these flashback memories to drive a wedge between Xerophile and Crowley. Mm. One of the examples is that because there are multiple moments where characters decline alcohol, Metatron disapproves and he's editing Xerophile's memory to make it less appealing. I don't really... I thought I thought that was just the gradual Aziraphale becoming corruptible. There's a whole thing a theory about Maggie isn't real. The Metatron made her up and wrote her in, and she's unrealistic because he's a bad writer, which is a cool idea that makes up for some of the weird writing around Maggie and Nina. I prefer my idea, but I wouldn't totally discredit it. But also, like the examples of things like she misspells something, uh, she doesn't drink, she has mood shifts. The whole locked in the coffee shop bit feels contrived. Again, I feel like that's just the point. They're meant to look like a cute coffee shop. Are you? story until they turn around and say hey we're not a fucking story mm. um there's uh, yeah that's it we are seeing it through we are seeing it to an extent through their eyes yeah and their eyes are very look at the simple humans doing the dance <laughs> generally the idea of maggie not being real is uh behaves too much like a character rather than a fictional real person and i think that's because she's written to be more of a character i'm gonna have an existential crisis joanna yeah um, so there's lots of theories about how the Metatron's manipulating things, and the theory of how to fix this in season three is some this idea of restoring corrupted files from backups. The backups being Aziraphale's journals. Now, I don't think this, there's a ton of ah. You found the existential crisis I book. Did it's just got a smiley face on it yeah. now, and I think that's how it's going to live. <laughs> I 
I don't think there's a ton of legs to this, but I do like the idea that Aziraphale's journals might be relevant, especially with Muriel looking after the bookshop. Yeah, definitely. Um, just because they're all there and it would be fun if Muriel reads them and learns more Ooh, of humanity. Oh, and we get some flashbacks through that. Yes. Yeah, that oh. I like. And, Muriel, and we get to hear like Muriel, oh, I don't know, we get, maybe get to see Muriel not understanding bits of it because they're very naive. And Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that would be cute. I like that. But yeah, so that's the basic theory. The Metatron is manipulating stuff through the Book of Life, but expressed mm. in 36 pages. And the conclusion, the conclusion, and I am going to read this word for word, and this this uh, frustrated me, this red smug to me. I know what you're wondering now. Do I have predictions for season three? Yes, and they're extremely good. However, I feel vaguely unethical about saying them out loud in public for thousands of people to read. Because after writing 15,000 words of this essay and laying out my evidence and arguments logically, I am more convinced than ever that I am onto something here. While I'm okay with pointing out textual clues lying out in the open in season two for anyone to see, or at least what I think are clues, and showing you how they fit together and what story structure suggests about them, I hesitate about going further than that and using my pretty good magician brain to speculate about season three because it feels like stealing the sparkle off of Neil's prestige, stealing his thunder? Well, I'm glad you're so confident. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, they might have absolutely 100% perfectly predicted season three. They might not have done. Just as they might be a very good writer, I haven't read any of their proper writing. But that read is a very arrogant way to fan theorise about it. Yeah, I'm not... Um, And it to the point it made me kind of uncomfortable. So I like the theory. I do not like uh, how the theory was delivered. And maybe I've been overly harsh about it, but I gave up a lot of my life to sit and read through those 36 pages. I think I've, I've earned the right to be a little bit harsh about it. If I was to come to a conclusion about using this 36-page Google Doc as one example, I do think there can sometimes be a sense of over-entitlement to a story within fandoms. Mm. And I don't just mean in the Good Omens fandom. I mean oh, yeah. in all fandoms. There's a sense of... I think it's exactly like this and I've thought about it a lot so I know best. What I thought was uh, interesting that you pointed out that luckily I haven't come across was that there are already teenage superfans of this being told to calm the fuck down by much older superfans, i.e. from 2019. Yeah, and it's a weird thing because, you know, for us, we've we've loved this book for it. And I'm not claiming like we have fandom superiority. I am. What I loved when the first season came out is that lots of no one was like, oh, well, you're not a proper fan. You haven't read the book. You haven't read any mm. other Neil Gaiman. You haven't read any Terry Pratchett. It's just like, oh, cool, you're here. Why are you here? I have these 41 books. <laughs> have you seen the flow charts? <laughs> oh, but it was encouraging. It was, oh, cool, new friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with season two, there's the people who have got into it with season two that weren't in it in season one and also haven't read any of the books. And I feel like some of those now it. It feels in places gatekeepy, and it's not. Am I might be raised tinted into glassing a bit though, because if you said there was quite a lot of criticism of the Good Omens TV series, specifically just by people like the first series, just by people who did not want to see it done. Yeah, and I think whereas within the the Good Omens enjoyers fan think- camp, there wasn't much gatekeeping. I think there was definitely a lot of mainly, let's be honest, practice rather than gaming fans who were yeah. just cross that it had been made at all yeah yeah i do think there were i i think there are some fans and again i don't think this is just this fandom i think this is true across all fandom Mm -hmm. there are some fans that any adaptation that isn't literally exactly how they imagine their book put 
put onto a screen will not be good enough for them and mm. they'd rather not have one. Yeah, I think we've talked about this at various junctures with me probably being petulant about adaptations, but that's life. By the way, <laughs> um, before I completely forget, the thing about uh, the this writer accidentally stealing the sparkle off Neil Gaiman's prestige and feeling like their magic tricks uh, should preclude them from saying such things. I found out recently, I can't remember where I read or heard it, this might be the Weave Can Be Weirdos podcast, but that Mark Twain believed in telepathy so surely that he thought George Bernard Shaw had just straight up stolen an idea from his brain for a story. <laughs> Incredible. Uh. And on that note, so the last thing is, uh, before we leave Good Omens Prime Forever, as we've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast, season three is not guaranteed yet. It has not been uh, given a promise of renewal by Amazon. Now, season two was announced way after season one came out so i don't think we can hope for a renewal like next week yeah we can hope for a renewal sadly because especially because this was binge dropped and just the model of things and i'm working on a piece about this that at some point will be out on my currently non-existent substack the best way to guarantee a season three as well as tweeting about it is just to watch the show and keep watching it and also keep talking about it past this initial buzz around the release yeah and it sucks. I hate that as fans, we have to feel responsible for getting a show renewed. And frankly, I don't. I'm afraid. I feel oh, no, like I don't feel <laughs> yeah. that responsibility. I do feel like this is an unfortunate side effect yeah. of how te- the television industry works at the moment. Yeah, I think each 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 fan who hears this message is such a small part of the whole that it really makes no difference. True. And I understand the compulsion from Neil Gaiman and from us, indeed, to say such things. But it'll happen or it won't, to be honest. Either yeah. people will keep watching it and talking about it or they won't. I have never felt guilty enough about anything to watch six hours of TV over it. I immediately feel guilty about everything all the time. Yeah. So, uh, But do you do anything of... about it? No, God no. Yeah, I'm exactly. just adapted That's to a... the constant low-level feeling of guilt. <laughs> anyway. Catholic. <laughs> I don't want to leave good omens on that note. That's shit. Let's talk about something nice. If you watch one thing from the bonus content, there is an outtake. They kept making David do the apology dance over and over again, and they made it doom do it one last time, just so that Michael Sheen could hold up a score. I would also like to say that although I am extremely angry with Aziraphale in certain ways, obviously, uh, I've also tried my best to you know come to terms with the fact that he's obviously been in this incredibly abusive celestial relationship, and I, I, I want to spare a thought for how much he must have you know, suffered with his own weird internal rewrites if he's been in love with a demon for quite a long time now and never been able to admit it. Whereas I think, although I was focusing more on how Crowley was, um, you know, uh, trying to keep his independence for, for much the same reason, I think it was probably easier for him to come to terms with the fact that he rather liked someone he wasn't meant to because that's the whole point of him. He's not meant to do what he does. Yeah, mm. I like that. Mm. Look, the thing is, we could keep talking about Good Omen Season 2 for a really long no, time. I'm clinging on by my fingernails, aren't I? <laughs> but I, I think I just didn't want to, to end on a sour note with the... Uh... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I should have planned a better note for us to end on, but we've got some nice notes now, and I think we should pry your fingertips away from Good Omen Season 2 for now. We can come okay. back again if you want. Okay. And turn back towards the disc, which is, after all, what we Ooh, normally yay! podcast. Oh, yay! Now we're doing Going Postal. There we go. Oh, there, there we, we go. go. Cheer up. Finally, so just, we 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 reach this this next cool arc in Discworld. Ooh, we like this. We do. So, just uh, what's coming up on the True Show Make You Frat? We need a week off, and we're going to have one because we can. 
So our first episode on Going Postal, and I haven't picked it up yet. I cannot tell you where that begins and ends. Uh, I know exactly where it begins because I've read this book so many fucking times. I can almost, almost recite the first scene. (laughs) Okay, I know where it begins. I don't know how I'm splitting the sections (laughs) up yet. On all of our socials, you'll know when we know, but the first episode on Going Postal is going to come out on the 11th of September. Uh, then in October, we will be talking about the book Thud. Uh, November, we will be bringing you a full three episodes on the Thud spin-off book, Where's My Cow? No, we're not yep. doing that. Uh, <laughs> November but we've rewritten is, uh, it in iambic pentameter. <laughs> November is still to be announced. Uh, we're planning some fun bonus stuff for you because then in December, we really want to end the year on Wintersmith. Yes, and the spreadsheet needed finagling. As it always does. Uh, heads up with Going Postal. I know we normally talk about an adaptation when we're talking about the book, but we have decided we're going to wait and talk about Going Postal at Christmas because that would be a nice treat. Yeah, it's nice. We usually do some kind of screen adaptation at Christmas and yep. it'll be a I nice could, one. I could not finagle the spreadsheet enough to make us land on go- Going Postal at Christmas. And I did no, try. No, no. Yeah, no, no. I tried. I, I like Wintersmith at Christmas anyway, even though it's not a Christmas book. It's got snow in it, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a solstice book. Yeah. <laughs> So until we come back to your lovely years in September and go back to the Discworld. Your lovely years, listeners. <laughs> dear little listeners with your dear little ears. We value each one. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, same on Blue Sky, uh, Facebook at the True Show Make You Fret, join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF, join our Discord, there's an invite link at the top of our show notes link section. Email us your thoughts, queries, castles, and snacks, the true shall make ye fret pod at gmail.com. Support this nonsense financially. Go to patreon.com forward slash true shall make ye fret, where you can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus bollocks. Wow, you went full terms and conditions apply. <laughs> I was trying to get us out of the episode. Side effects may include. <laughs> and until next time, dear listener, to the world. To the world. Sorry, I made you say horb. Are you kidding? I love it.